Lord Jesus, there is no one in this universe like you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in, in such a practical way by stepping off your heavenly throne, coming into this world, living a perfect life, and then dying. Dying a death that you did not deserve, but dying a death that was necessary if we were to be freed of our sins. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done all this, and we praise you because you not only died, but then you resurrected. And now you are at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, interceding on our behalf. And we have that promise that nothing could ever separate us from your love. And so, Lord, we thank you for these great promises and these great realities of who you are and what you have done. And today as we open the scripture, I pray that you will help us to see how your love and your grace apply to our lives. So that as we go through life in this broken world, a world that frequently does not seem fair, that we will be able to cling to you and to live lives of gratitude and lives of joy, even as we deal with challenges as well. And we know that we can do all these things because you are the one who gives us strength to do so. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And we are going to be continuing the topic that I began in the children's message, that topic that says, it's not fair. Children love to say, it's not fair. I hear this many times a day, actually, in my house. It, it kind of drives me crazy. I wish I could just get across to my kids the fact that, you know what? Life isn't fair. You just have to understand that there are going to be times where you want something in your life that you're not getting. And there are going to be times when other people get something that you want. That's just a basic fact of life. But, but you need to stop comparing yourself with other people because if you just constantly compare yourself with what the others have and what you want but don't have, you're going to be miserable. It's just going to drain the joy and the contentment out of your life. I wish I could get that across to my kids. Because you know what? The idea of it's not fair drives me crazy. And it's not helpful for anyone. But the fact is, it's not just kids who say it's not fair. There are times I need to get this across in my own life as well, that, that comparing with others just drains the joy and the life out of us, all of us. And as we grow, we may become a bit more sophisticated in how we convey the idea that it's not fair. We may not use that exact phrase, but the bottom line is we still have that mentality that we are getting the short end of the stick. And what then happens if we have that mentality of it's not fair is that we can begin to project it onto God. And we begin to blame God. Of God, why aren't you giving me what I want? Why aren't you giving me what I deserve? And we blame him for why our life is not as good as we think it ought to be. Well, today we are looking at this topic of it's not fair. And we're looking at it through the lens of a parable that Jesus told. A parable is a story that relates to a real-life type of situation. It's not a story that necessarily happened in directly the way that Jesus conveys it, but it's intended to relate well with people and then to help people understand truths about God and his kingdom. And today we're looking at a parable in Matthew chapter 20. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew 20. Verses 1 through 15. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, 
he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Don't you, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a very unimaginative title for a very provocative storyline. And I want to start off just in, in, in verse 1 and 2. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. And this would have been a scene that was very common back in that day of a person who needs workers going into the marketplace and then finding some workers, agreeing on a wage, and then sending them out into the field. That was a very common scene back in that culture. Because there were a lot of people in that culture who did not have ongoing jobs. And so if, some, if a man did not have an ongoing job back in that culture, in the early in the morning, they'd go out to the marketplace and they would stand there waiting for a business owner or a landowner to come and someone who needs workers and hire them. And this pay of a denarius was a standard pay back then for a day laborer, which is what these people were called. A denarius was a silver coin. And it was enough money in order to sustain a family for roughly a day. And not much more. It was very minimal pay, but that was standard for the day for a day laborer. And so, so this landowner who owns a vineyard goes out. He finds some people um, and he hires them and he sends them out into the field. This is a normal arrangement. But then interestingly, he goes out again at 9 in the morning. Finds some more workers in the marketplace and sends them to work as, as well. He does the same thing at noon and the same thing at three in the afternoon and the same thing at five, gathering more workers from the marketplace and sending them to work in this harvest field. So we see that workers are hired at different times. Now this is a bit unique, but Jesus has a story that he's trying to tell. He's trying to illustrate a point about God's kingdom by telling a story that people can relate to, but even it still has a couple of unique aspects of it. So he has people who have been hired at five different times through the day. And they've each worked a different amount of time. An average work day back then was about 12 hours. And some of these men have been working in, in that field for 12 hours, some maybe nine hours, and some only one hour or three hours. There's this huge disparity. 
And then at the, at the end of the workday, they line up to be paid. And, and they line up to be paid, and the owner has a point he wants to prove. So he tells the foreman to have the, the, the people who started last, started at 5 in the afternoon, get paid first. It's an unorthodox way of handling this, but, but the, the landowner has something he wants to prove. And so the, the workers who'd only worked one hour, they're first in line. And they receive from the foreman a denarius. That silver coin that was equivalent to one day's worth of wages. And this was pretty amazing. Wow, only have to work an hour, only have to work three hours, and I get a full day's pay. This is wonderful. Now you can imagine at that point what the people in the back of the line began to think. They began to think, wow, if those people only worked like one hour or three hours, if they get a denarius, what am I going to get? They're probably rubbing their hands together thinking, all right, going to eat well tonight. What am I going to get? Maybe five denarii, ten denarii. This is pretty exciting, looking like it's going to work out really well for me. And then those who'd been working nine hours and then 12 hours, they got to the front of the line and they too received a denarius. Now, that was what they agreed to work for. But they began to complain. They began to basically say, it's not fair. They began to grumble against the landowner. The owner paid all the workers identical amounts, but to them it was not fair. But again, we have to understand the landowner did not shortchange the workers who started earlier. Because remember in verse 2 it said that he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. They had completely agreed on this wage. And this wage was appropriate back in that day, a denarius for a day's work. So he did not shortchange the workers who started earlier at all. But they began to compare themselves with those who started later. And they said, it's not fair. It's not fair that we had to work harder. It's not fair that we had to be out here in the heat of the day. And so, so they complained and they grumbled against the landowner. And you know what? From our perspective and our, our ideal of fairness, it doesn't seem that fair, does it? Because you get some people who only worked like one hour or three hours, starting late in the day when it's cooler anyway, and they're making the same amount of money as the workers who work nine or 12 hours. It doesn't seem quite fair, especially when they're doing the same work for the same landowner. I was reading a Sports Illustrated article this week that talked about how these high-end attorneys who work for the National Football League, the NFL, receive $1,200 per hour plus expenses. I thought, wow, <laughs> takes me a lot longer than one hour to earn $1,200. Probably the same for all of you as well. I mean, the bottom line, though, is that we understand that, that an attorney, a high-end attorney especially, and a pastor, or whatever your vocation is, these, these are different vocations. Even if you're an attorney, you probably recognize, okay, an attorney for the NFL might get compensated differently than other types of attorneys. So, so you have people working for different employers doing different type of work that is valued differently in terms of the monetary value that someone attaches to it. There are differences, so, so then we can somewhat justify the differences in pay, even though $1,200 an hour still seems a bit high. But that's what the NFL pays the, the attorneys who are doing their work. And so you have different amounts of pay for different types of labor for different employers. But back here in this parable, you have all these workers, and they are doing the same work 
for the same employer, yet if you work it out hourly, they are getting compensated differently. And so, so we have some grumbling. And you know, on the surface, it doesn't look very fair. But what we see in this passage is that the owner is being generous. The owner is being generous. Now, some people are uncomfortable with what's taking place here. So they try to rationalize the behavior of the owner, saying, well, okay, here's what must have happened back then. The workers that started early, they were lazy. They they took long coffee breaks. They took long lunch breaks. They were just talking with each other. They were messing around. They didn't get that much work done. But those who started later, they were motivated. And they got more work done, or at least as much work done in one hour or three hours as the others got work work done in nine to 12 hours. And so, you know, it's equal equal pay for equal work. It's just those who started later got more done. And we we know the, the reality is in our world that some people are more productive than others and therefore probably deserve to earn more. But there's no indication in Jesus telling this parable that that is what was taking place. No. The rationale given here comes in verses 13 through 15. After those laborers complained, the owner said to them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Yes, they did. Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? You hear the motive here. It's generosity. The people who started first got paid exactly what they expected to be paid, what they agreed to be paid for the labor that they did. But the owner decided to be generous with those who started later. Generosity, it was grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But he gave them out of the generosity and the graciousness of his heart. And we also see that, I think we see the heart of the landowner here, and he saw that they had a need. Because these day laborers, they did not have, they didn't make enough money to store up money. They have a savings account to make up for when they didn't get work. So I think what we see here is the care of that landowner recognizing, you know what, these, these guys are hired later in the day. They need to make a living as well. They need to be able to go home and feed their family as well. So out of my graciousness, I'm going to pay them a denarius so they can support their family for another day. It was grace. It was generosity. From a human perspective, it may not seem fully fair. But we have to understand that, that the landowner was being gracious and generous. And here in this parable, we have to understand that Jesus is showing us how God's kingdom redefines life, that God's ways are not always our ways. He's telling this parable to help define the kingdom of God. He says in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. And then he gives this parable. He's explaining how God works in his kingdom and how God intends for life in this world to work. But we have to understand that the values of this world are oftentimes contrary to God's values. So, so God's turning the values of this world upside down in this parable. And we see that by how this parable is bookended. Just before this parable starts, last verse of chapter 19, Jesus said, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So what this means is that there are a lot of people in this world who think they're climbing the ladder of success. But then... When they, when they come to the reality of God's kingdom, whether here in this life or in eternity, they're going to realize that they may be at the very bottom. Whereas those who in this world look like they don't have a whole lot going for them, 
because of God's grace in the end may be seen as great in the kingdom of God, even though the world didn't esteem him very much. Whoever is first will be last. Whoever is last will be first in the kingdom of God. Verse 16 of, of chapter 20, which comes right when the parable is done, says basically the same thing. It says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And so Jesus is taking the values of this world and flipping them upside down. Now I want to look at this for the rest of our time this morning from two different angles that, that help redefine how we live our lives. And the two angles are looking at God's grace and looking at human envy. So let's start with God's grace. This parable certainly displays God's grace. And we see in this parable how God's kingdom operates by grace, not merit. Now, let's distinguish between these two. Merit means that you get something that you earn or you deserve. For instance, if, if, if a child is in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and they perform a certain task up to a certain standard, what do they receive? A merit badge. That means that they have earned it because they've completed that task. It's a merit badge. Uh, broadening that out a little bit, if we work a job, complete a certain task or a certain number of hours, we earn a paycheck. We merit that paycheck by putting in the work and getting the task done. That is what we earn. That's what we merit. But we have to understand that God's kingdom does not operate on the basis of merit or on what we earn. It operates on the basis of grace. And we see this right in the parable that, that, um, that, that those who started later in the day, they were given grace. They didn't earn it, but God saw they had a need. He took the initiative and gave them more than they deserve. That's grace. That's what grace is. It's a free gift. It's something we can't earn. We can't deserve it. And it's at the initiative of the giver. Begging for it is not really how to get Grace. But grace is that free, unmerited gift at the initiative of the giver. And that's what the landowner gives those who started later. And that's what God wants to give us. Now, our natural tendency as humans, and especially as Americans, is to want to earn things. Think, you know what? I can't just accept a free gift. I need to deserve it. But when we really understand biblical teaching, we need to be thankful that God does operate on the basis of grace and not merit. Because all we really merit, spiritually speaking, is bad stuff. Because Romans 3.23, that's a technical term, bad stuff. Um, meaning that's what we earn. Uh, Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. Uh, that's 6.23. Romans 3.23 says all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. A wage is what we earn. It's what we merit. What we merit because of our sin is spiritual death, which is separation from God here in this earth. And for eternity, that's what we earn. And there's no amount of good works that can merit us favor in God's sight. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says that before God, because of our sinful nature, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That there is nothing that we can do to merit God's favor. Because our sin is always going to separate us from God. That's what we earn is separation from God. But he sees our need, and he gives us grace through Jesus. That's why Jesus came to this earth to die a death that he did not deserve. It was not fair to him in order to, to give us freedom 
from condemnation and freedom from eternal punishment. And so we see this grace that has been given us. That's referred to in the second half of Romans 6.23. It says, um, for, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift, the grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and we receive grace not by working hard and earning it, but by faith, by receiving it as a gift. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So it's not by merit. It's not by works. It's not by deserving things that God gives good things to us, especially the gift of salvation. It's by grace. Because God's kingdom operates by grace, not by merit. And we have to understand that it's not just salvation that's given by grace. Every single blessing, every single good thing we enjoy in our lives comes from God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's given by grace. So if we understand that God's kingdom works on the basis of grace, an application point is to stop bargaining with God and simply trust him. But because we are human, and because we live in America particularly, we like to think that we can bargain with God and we can earn his grace. We can earn his favor. We can earn good things from him. For instance, you think about um, people who just want to bargain with God. And they think, okay, God, I'll do this for you if you will do this for me. For instance, if you will help me pass this exam... They may or may not have actually studied very well for. I will stop partying on the weekends. Or if you will help me get that new job or help me uh, land that big business deal, then I will take my family back to church. Or if you will um, help me do well in the sports competition, or if you will help me get that boyfriend or girlfriend, then I'll get serious about you. This is bargaining with God. And it's something that many people do. I've heard, um, it's kind of a funny thing to think about, but I've heard, you know what, half of all Christians should be missionaries in Africa because of the promises that, that Christians have made to God. That God, if you'll just do this, I'll go be a missionary in Africa. Because we naturally want to bargain with God, thinking, okay, God, I'll do this for you if you will do this for me. We bring this meriting mentality to our relationship with God. You look, at, look here in this passage, though, and what the workers were doing who, who received the grace of the landowner, it was not bargaining with the landowner. It was trusting the landowner. Because it was only those very first workers who agreed on being paid as denarius. The rest simply trusted the landowner would treat them fairly. It says uh, in verse 4, that he told those workers who were hired later, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. Whatever is right. He, they didn't agree on the amount. They didn't barter. They didn't bargain. Instead, the, those workers trusted the landowner. And that is the call for us as well, to trust God. We are still called to pray to God, but not to bargain with God, not saying, God, I'll do this for you if you will do this for me. This week as I was studying uh, for this, this message, um, I came across an interesting thing that happened about a century ago. There was a pastor named R.A. Torrey about a century ago, early 1900s. And he received a letter from a, a man who had been very active in church one day. And the letter said this, Dear Mr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. 
I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of my church for 30 years and have tried to be consistent, a consistent member all that time. I have been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? Hari Tori read this and uh, immediately realized what's going on here. The guy, he's active in church, but he thinks that by being active in church, he's going to merit favor in God's sight, that that is going to, to cause God to be indebted to him, so that then God will basically be obligated to answer his prayer in the way that this guy wants. But that is not how God works. He doesn't work on the basis of merit or what we earn. He works on the basis of grace. We have to remember Romans eleven thirty five, where it says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God doesn't owe us anything except for hell. That's what we earn. And anything good that we have in our lives, whether now or in eternity, comes purely by his grace. And so we need to understand that everything that we have good in our lives comes from his grace. And, and what that should cultivate in us is an attitude of, of gratitude. And that we should seek to thank God frequently and specifically looking at the blessings that we have in our lives, whether spiritual blessings or, or earthly blessings, and be active in thanking God consistently and specifically for the blessings that we have. And that can help us to recognize, you know, God, you have been good to me. I may not have everything that I perfectly desire in my life, but you have still been good. And your goodness is not because I've earned it, but it's because you are gracious. So that's the angle of God's grace, that we need to remember everything good we have in our lives comes purely by God's grace, and that should well up in us in an attitude of gratitude. But let's talk about this other angle of envy. Envy is not very pretty, and it's not fun at all. Rick Warren, pastor in California, said that envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. And as I went through this week preparing, I thought, I can't say it any better than that. Envy is resenting God's goodness toward others, and it's also ignoring God's goodness to me. So we're, we're upset because someone else got something good, and we're upset because we didn't get it, and, and we're, we're very self-centered and not even recognizing the blessings that God has given us in our lives. I mean, you look back at this parable, why were those first workers so upset? They got perfectly what they expected to get when they agreed to work for that landowner. They are upset because of comparison. They, most of them, if not all of them, probably went home angry that day, being like, it's not fair. And it's not that the landowner shortchanged them. It's that in comparison with others, they felt like it's not fair. If they didn't compare, they would go home perfectly satisfied with a good day's work and a good day's pay. But because they compared themselves, they got upset, they got angry, they got frustrated. And so, so it's envy that comes up because they're focused not on, on the goodness they received, but on the goodness that others received that they, they don't think is fair. And we have to understand that, 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 that um, comparison kills contentment and joy and faith. I mean, comparison with others is incredibly unhealthy. 
I mean, I was thinking about it. I think it's, it's unhealthy, kind of like smoking 10 packs a day is unhealthy. It's unhealthy, kind of like driving with your seatbelt off is unhealthy. It's just something that does not bring any good to us. Is, I mean, if you think about just various sins that you can commit, most type of sin brings at least some temporary pleasure or satisfaction, whether it's lust or, or greed or, or even anger, angry outbursts or any other type of sin. It brings gluttony, um, laziness. It, it brings some sort of temporary satisfaction or fulfillment or pleasure. Envy does not bring any of that at all. It, it tastes terrible from the very beginning. And so, I mean, it kills contentment and joy and faith. I think about my kids and how, you know, one of them could be at a birthday party for a couple hours and just love the birthday party. They're having fun with friends, and they might be in a fun place, and they're eating tasty treats, and they're getting fun trinkets to bring, bring home. And, you know, it's, it's a very fun thing. And they come home and find out their sibling got to watch a movie while they were at the birthday party. And suddenly it's like World War III just started. <laughs> it's not fair. And that's because they are not thinking at all about the fun that they just had that their sibling actually didn't get to participate in. All they're thinking about is, you know, my sibling got to do something nice. And I wish that was me. I wish I got to do both. My sibling got neither. That's the attitude of envy that just kills any sort of joy or contentment. I think about the influence of social media. I'm not completely against technology and social media, but I'm also not a big fan of, of some of the aspects of what social media brings out, including that comparison with others. Take a look at this video that kind of shows the attitude that social media like Facebook can sometimes bring. Good morning, Facebook. What's new? Good morning, Facebook. What's new? Hey, someone commented on my photo. Ugh, look at that. Rachel Klein is showing off her new job again. What do you know? Loving the new beer belly, dude. You wear it well. Ha ha. Off to London this time. What's that? Three times overseas this year? Well, Brad, some of us don't have the luxury of spending two hours at the gym every day, you jerk. Looks like she's living the dream. Not that I wouldn't like to. I see Meredith has a new outfit again. Oh, look at this. Jason's getting his master's degree. Gosh, I really like it, too. Way to go, buddy. I wonder who makes it. One of us actually went and did it. Guess she's got money to burn. Oh, Blake, Cal, and Ryan all went out last night. Thanks for the invitation, guys. The Wilsons are having another baby. Guess I'm not as good of friends with them as I thought. I guess getting pregnant is no problem for some people. I'm so sick of Jim posting. Oh my gosh, Katie. About how great it. it is. Your husband to be is perfect. Free. Your children are perfect. Good for you. Whole family is perfect. Why are you just perfect? And you've got artistic professional photos taken in a field somewhere to prove it. Oh man, I love this guy's design work. Oh, look at this kid's birthday He's just party. So good. Bounce house, pony rides. Slip and slide. Seems effortless. The expectations are so high. I feel like high. I'm playing peewee baseball to his major league. How could I even afford something like this? Why do I even bother? Why do I even bother? What? They gave it to Cynthia? I interviewed for that position like three times. That was a shoe. Another fabulous meal out for Rick and Jeff. I needed that promotion. Yeah, I'd be that happy too if I were eating at Bistro Mode. I'm going to be stuck doing the same thing for the rest of my career. I wonder why John never initiates date nights. What am I doing wrong? Seems like Rick is pretty good at it. Why is life so much easier for everyone else? Why is life so much easier for everyone else? 
do I even go on Facebook? Why do I even go on Facebook? Okay, I think there are good things that can come from social media. But one of the really unhealthy things that is plaguing, especially younger generations, is this comparison. This envy that's welled up in us. And study after study has shown that, that people who are very active with social media are less healthy emotionally and mentally. And most of that comes from that comparison of never being satisfied and content with what we have, of always looking at what someone else has and thinking, we need that. I wish that was me. Why do they get that? It's not fair. It's not fair just drains the contentment and the joy and also drains faith in God because it gets our focus off God and onto ourselves. And, you know, I think everyone struggles with this topic of comparison or with envy of thinking, I wish life was different. I even think of, of myself as a pastor. Pastors struggle with this all the time. Where, you know what, I love Freedance and such special people here and God's doing exciting things here and it's exciting to look ahead and just see all the stuff going on with the building project and with, with our ministry stuff that's coming up and, and just some clarity on our discipleship plan which you'll read about in the newsletter that you'll get today. And there's so much exciting stuff here. But I hear what's going on in other pastors' lives. I see what's going on uh, through social media. I'm connected with a lot of people I went to seminary with or went on missions trips with. And I think, you know what? Compared to them, I'm not a very good preacher. They have a lot more wisdom than I do. They're a lot better leader than I am. They're better at casting vision than I am. Or look at what's going on at their church. They have so many people coming to faith in Christ. They have this huge fancy building, and they're doing so many amazing things. It's easy to compare and to get very dissatisfied with myself or with what is going on here. And it's nothing against what's going on here. It's simply that comparison that creates envy and discontent that is very, very unhealthy. And we all have to be monitoring this. And so one of the things we need to do, which is easier said than done, is stop comparing ourselves with others. It's about as easy as telling an alcoholic to stop drinking. Because this is ingrained in us. We have these insecurities just because of our sinful nature. And we, we want what other people have. And we naturally want to say it's not fair. But we need to at least start, have that starting point of recognizing comparison and envy are not healthy. We need to root them out of our lives. And so one way to do that is to focus on God's goodness and on God's glory. So get the focus off of ourselves and onto God. Let him satisfy us. And that will help us be content rather than thinking, oh, we need more and more stuff. And one of the other practical things we can do is to rejoice in others' successes and blessings. I mean, you think about those workers who were hired first. They could have gone home, rather than being all upset and saying it's not fair, they could have gone home and say, you know what, I work for such an amazing landowner. It's so amazing that, that he is so gracious. He saw the need that those workers had. They, need, they have a family they need to feed. And he was willing to pay them a full day's work even though, just because they needed it, even though they didn't get to work because they weren't hired earlier, they received grace. We have, I have a gracious and good employer. If they would have just been able to rejoice with other successes and blessings, they could have found joy rather than envy. There's a huge difference between those two. And a big part of it is how we look at the, the benefits and successes that others have. 
And with me, I mean, as I said, pastors, and if you read pastoral literature or talk with any pastors, you'll see it's a common thing, just as business people easily get envious of others. And, you know, it's, it's so easy to be envious of others. One of the healthiest things for me spiritually has been getting involved in recent months with a group of other senior pastors locally of like-minded churches. And just we meet twice a month early in the morning and just able to get to know each other and, and share what's going on in our lives and our churches, pray for each other, just share things that we know that it's really iron sharpening iron. It's so encouraging, but it's so healthy emotionally and spiritually because when you get to know someone rather than, oh, it's just that church down the street who's doing something great, rather than competition, you become friends and you begin to rejoice with their successes. Rejoice with what God's doing more broadly in his kingdom. Thinking, you know what? It's not just about freedom. It's not just about Brandon. But God's doing something bigger. And I can rejoice at that. And so one of the huge keys in life, if we want to get past that it's not fair mentality, is to learn to rejoice in God's grace and God's blessing. Not only that he gives to us, but that he lavishes on others as well. Recognizing it is all grace. We don't deserve anything good, but God is so gracious and so good that he blesses us and he blesses others. And at the end of the day, we need to remember grace is not fair. It is not fair that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. And that's something that, that I constantly am calling back in my mind when I think, you know what, that's not fair. Because I remember it wasn't fair for Jesus. But he did it out of love and out of joy. And life in this broken world isn't fair. But we have God that we can depend on. And God's grace is sufficient for us both now and for eternity. So let's fix our eyes on, on Jesus. And let's also rejoice in what God is doing in other people's lives around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace. We do not deserve any of it. We don't earn or deserve anything good. All we deserve is hell. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us your grace. And I pray that your grace will be enough for us. That in those times we're tempted to look around and think, well, I just wish I had that. I wish I had that shiny new thing I saw in the store. I wish, I wish that I had what the other person got. It's not fair. Lord, I pray that you will remind us of Jesus. And how the grace that he has given us on the cross is not fair. But we are very thankful for it. And Lord, help us to rejoice with those around us when they have benefits, when they have blessings. Lord, help us to be content. We know that according to the scripture, godliness with contentment is great gain. May we be content. May your grace be sufficient for us. And Lord, give us a sense of joy that comes from knowing that you are a gracious God. He gives us far more than we can ever ask or imagine. We pray these things in your name.